there's no sea monster big enough to ever frighten me. Got a whale of a tail to tell you, lad. The whale of a tail or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. Whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. Hello and welcome to Lost in Sci-Fi and Fantasy. I'm your host, Leo, and today we are talking about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, both the book and the 1954 film by Disney. The reason I've decided to do both of them together uh, this time is, one, well, firstly, it, it helps with the next week's episode on Daughter of the Deep. Secondly, it means that I don't really have to come back to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, because something that you guys have been spared a bit of is my complete and utter ire while trying to read the book 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. <laughs> I... In a few recordings, have expressed my dislike and um, discomfort while reading the book, but I, while editing those episodes, decided to kind of scale it back. As some of you may have noticed in the Pyramid slash the uh, Autocus um, episode, that episode's very short. That's because I actually recorded that of that batch first, and I went on a bit of a tirade about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I figured, eh, it's best to just kind of wait until I've finished reading it and get back to it. You know, you save, save it for the actual episode. My opinions have shifted a bit, but honestly, not a whole lot. I'm going to go ahead and get my general opinion on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea out of the way right now. It is a painfully dull book. Most people probably remember it for its exciting parts. You know, the things that they list on the back of the book. And... That's fine, that's usually what most people remember of most things, but at the same time, usually those things also have other good bits that you tend to forget about. This book doesn't have those. It literally has only its highlight parts, and that's it. Everything else is painfully dull. The book, I'm willing to say, within its last 15 chapters, is okay. It actually has interesting stuff going on. It has, you know, things that you can grasp onto. And, of course, it's the stuff that's on the back of the book. Now, you might also hear me say 15 chapters and think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's great. This book has about 46 chapters, give or take. And, yeah, it it's painfully, you feel every single one of those chapters. You guys might also remember my review, because it te technically wasn't that long ago, on Around the World in 80 Days. I have, of course, been reading this book since then. It is almost four times as big as that book, and a, more dull. It's a whole lot more dull. Around the World in 80 Days had issues. Around the World in 80 Days, you know, the main character that, you know, you're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, you know, Phileas Fogg, let's go. He's super boring. He, he just doesn't react to anything ever. In this, the characters react and have emotions and want to do something. That's, that's good. You know, that's a mark improvement in general in character development and everything but i'm gonna say that probably about a good 20 percent of this book is just them listing fish it is nothing but endless lists of fish that sometimes go on for multiple pages and you're just stuck there and you feel miserable the entire time i literally broke down while reading this book because it was another list of fish, and it was a list of fish that went on for seven pages. Now, of course, when I say list of fish, I am kind of generalizing. It's just a list of marine life and plants and etc. When I was first, you know, starting the book and whatnot, I, I was thinking, oh, you know, you could probably cut out all of the, like, Latin names for the fish because a lot of times they will just use... They'll say, name a fish, Latin name, classification, and go through the entire line of classification. If you'd cut out the Latin names, you could probably save about 10 pages, is what I thought. Uh, no, if you cut out the lists of fish, as well as the Latin names and whatnot, and just kind of generally nothing happening, you could probably cut out at least 100 pages of this book, because there is a whole lot of nothing happening. Anyway... <laughs> With that kind of out of the way, let's kind of whew, refocus, recenter, and kind of move on. <laughs> so some things I, I, I wanted to kind of point out were how the books are described. 
Uh, I I can't remember if I said this in the Around the World in 80 Days review. I think I did. But if you're going to read a Jules Verne book, don't read the back of it. The back of it will tell you everything that happens. It happens on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It happens in Around the World in 80 Days. It happens on Off on a Comet. It, it happens on, like, all of them. And I wanted to show you, you know, two different ways that this book is described. One is in the back of Journey to the Center of the Earth. In the back of this book is a little ad for classic adventure tales. The featured books are Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson, Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, and Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. The description for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea reads, This extraordinary voyage into the depths of the unknown aboard the fabulous submarine the Nautilus, built and commanded by the brilliant, warped Captain Nemo constitutes an exploration into both the possibilities of science and the labyrinth of the human mind. A pretty good, like, kind of description, and probably one of the better descriptions of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Kind of. <laughs> because that's not really true. For the most part, Captain Nemo, I would say, has more in common with, like, Phileas Fogg, to where he just doesn't react to a whole lot of stuff. But in this case, there's a good reason to it. Although it is similar to Phileas Fogg, to where he knows, he he knows almost without a doubt that everything is going to go his way. Like I said, it's similar to Phileas Fogg, because Phileas Fogg, the entire reason why he's so stoic and, you know, doesn't react to anything is because he planned it to, you know, have problems along the way. So he just rolls with the punches. And only at the very end of the book does he show, you know, strong emotion. Now with Captain Nemo, you know, a lot of times when people think of Captain Nemo, they think of this man who's full of revenge, you know, fire in his eyes when he thinks of, you know, his enemies. And there's kind of that, but it flares up literally twice in the book. The first time is when he sp uh, spies something on the horizon. He gets a flare of anger. When Professor Aranax goes to take a look through his spyglass, he, like, rips it out of his hand and says, go below deck. I am invoking one of our you know parts of our agreement go below deck and wait in the cell they do they knock they get knocked out by a gas and then they wake up in their bed not knowing what happened you later find out that he was like he likely did what he does later in the book uh he sunk a ship and his crewmates suffered for um that and that's where the burial scene comes in this image of him as like this you know ball of fury it comes more from the film and we're going to get into the film a little bit later i'm going to try to intermingle them together but the main focus of this at least right now as i probably do more damage to the damn thing is the book and my my experience with it the book for the first half it's split into two parts let me get to the table of contents it is split into two parts in which the first part is 24 chapters and the second part is 23 chapters, constituting 47 chapters. There you go. Although the last chapter doesn't fully count because it's literally two pages. And it's a fucking cop-out, too. That That's... Mm, mm. Okay. <laughs> so for the most part, what happens in the first half of the book is mostly just a tour of the ship and a tour of some some places around the like Atlantic and or the Pacific, sorry, the the Atlantic comes in only in the second half. But it's mostly you know an exploration of the Pacific and what and all these things. You don't really get a whole lot of interesting things. The second half of the book starts off kind of similarly, shows some interesting things, then they kind of hand wave around some other things, and then you get into the interesting stuff around the Bay of Vigo, and from there you know the the book gets decently interesting the book itself's uh description of itself is this so it starts with the immediately a long tentacle reached in through the opening up like a snake and a score of others waved about above it that is from the chapter squids that's just a, a little excerpt from from the chapter squids uh here's the description that the book is at first they think it is a giant monster a vast black object menacing the oceans and causing panic over the world yet when professor aranax joins an expedition to hunt down the creature he and his two companions discover it is a giant submarine the nautilus captured and held prisoner on board by its captain nemo unpredictable enigmatic 
exiled from humanity, they have no choice but to travel the underwater depths with him, encountering coral reefs, polar ice, the city of Atlantis, and a terrifying giant squid that tries to drag the Nautilus down to the deep. Combining thrilling adventure with scientific facts and a wonder of the natural world, Jules Verne's most enduring popular novel is brought to life in David Coward's vivid new translation. And that is actually one positive I do have to say about this book, is it is a much more modern translation of the book. The translation is from, I believe, 2017. Let me see. Gotta look at the copyrights. Um, yeah, translation and editorial material copyright, David Coward, 2017. So this is a 2017 um, translation of the book, so it's much more readable than the, like, from the same time that the other book came out, uh, translation of Around the World in 80 Days. It's much more readable, but at the same time, there's a lot more subtext to read as well, which we will once again get into later. Quick side note while we're here. Me and this book have gone through the ringer together. So, uh, as I've said before, the reason I was reading the Jules Verne books was because I am working on a design for a charity butterfly, etc. that works with Jules Verne and whatnot. We have put that idea on pause to, one, test if the concept works, and to give me a break, because this book broke me. It broke me so hard. So, I did find two sections that I wanted to take examples from for the design. So I, I can do one half of the design and see if it works as a concept. But while doing that, I uh, while scanning the book, I ripped a page. So I had to repair the page, and it, it it's mm, not, not great. And then I accidentally sat on the book once. I was trying to get comfortable while reading it, and I, I sat on it, and it kind of creased the cover not in a great way. It It's functional still. It's a book. It's not too expensive, but it's not terribly cheap. It's $13, but, you know, that's for a book. Not great. Anyway, so some of the descriptions that have been levied on in this set are that it combines thrilling adventure with scientific facts. The scientific facts are about the equivalent of someone sitting there across from you listing fish and a lot of the facts he just gets plain wrong now to be fair again this is a book from when is it 1860 something 1870 something and the the problem with it is that of course a lot of things we know more about for example there's a scene in which captain nemo is getting into a fight with a shark one it describes the shark as just being plain old vicious which we now know is not really the case and it describes the shark more like a starved piranha than a shark because of like its behavior and he fully like cuts its underbelly and it keeps fighting the way that it, they describe that sharks attack is that they turn upside down to attack you and that's just not right because most sharks if you turn them upside down are paralyzed and they can't do anything <laughs> And then comes the third issue with at least Jules Verne's writing of like fights is that for the most part they can be decently tense, but they almost always end the same way with the creature being stabbed through the heart. So the shark, even though it's you know had its guts you know cut open, fights on, but once Ned Land stabs it in the heart, it dies. Then later on in the book. They are fighting a dugong. Uh, a dugong, uh, as most people know them, is like it's kind of like a manatee, kind of like a sea. They kind of also go by the name sea cows and whatnot. And you look up the, a picture of a dugong and you can just go dong because they're cute. They have squidgy little faces. They're adorable. The way that he describes a dugong, which annoyed me even later in the book, is he pretty much describes it as a walrus. He describes it with you know as this absolutely massive beast with gigantic tusks that's able to lift a dinghy with eight people in it and is fine and again it doesn't die until it's stabbed through the heart and the reason that the dugong description annoys me is because later on he, he 
points out that there's walruses and he pretty much describes them in the same way it it, it hurt my brain it hurt my brain and also just like the scale of certain things just blew my mind as to like is this at all correct or not and the answer is probably not because i'm pretty sure like a dolphin can't get like six seals in it and you know whatnot it i don't know it, it hurt my brain that's the issue when something is touting itself as like scientific fact and it's from over a hundred years ago you kind of have to question it you know and you know especially with things that we've come to learn are just wrong oh and sorry i just realized i forgot to describe why the shark was was like a prana when they killed the shark and they were leaving which that whole ordeal is weird in its of itself of like positioning and whatnot but that aside the shark floats up to the top and as they're leaving they see that a bunch of more sharks come and just like devour the body even though if i remember correctly shark blood in the water deters sharks from the area like it, it kind of acts as a bit of a natural repellent i can't remember if that was real or not i might have been watching too much shark week at the time i don't know it's it's one of those facts that you kind of pick up out of nowhere <laughs> might have been from the like weird documentary the whale that killed jaws or whatever anyway i'm i'm, I'm diverting <laughs> so the events on the back of the book do happen you know there's a bunch of coral reefs and in fact um they get stuck on one and that's what constitutes them going to an island for some shore leave to find some birds and get some food because ned land keeps complaining that the food is not beef or you know meat so he, he gets he gets annoyed even though they do eat plenty of fish but around that time in a lot of places don't really consider fish meat it's weird they do find uh atlantis although the description annoys me greatly because it describes atlantis as a continent that bridged africa and america like the americas so it's an absolutely massive continent that just sank just disappeared it just it just said nah and dipped like <laughs> it's supposed to be this absolutely massive country in this book at least that went to war with greece and lost like this absolute behemoth of a country went to war with greece and lost <laughs> i don't know but i did enjoy the description of it like the whole hike up the mountain and everything was pretty good uh, the polar ice they that's actually a pretty interesting tense thing full of confusing things because it, it basically posits that at the north and the south pole they're whilst covered with ice at the very center of the ice is sea again and i don't i'm pretty sure that that's not true especially when it comes to the south pole and i'm pretty sure it's not true when it comes to the north pole though there is like a little passage that you can go through near the north pole to kind of get around but putting that aside but yeah so that's where he describes the walrus annoys me greatly still but there's a, an interesting kind of situation in which while leaving the south pole a iceberg flips which i believe actually is like a phenomenon that happens and ends up pinning them and they have to kind of scoot their way but end up getting trapped in this ice tunnel and have to try to find a way out before they run out of air and that's actually a really good set of interesting chapters that ends and then it goes back to being boring for like another like three chapters for some reason as they're just sitting around wondering where are we going what are we doing what's happening and there's a point where it, they go from the coast of the americas back to europe and you can't tell exactly when they did that because at the point where you think that they're traveling across the atlantic to get back to european waters they're not they're traveling up further up the coast and then smash cut they're you know they're in european waters again it it baffles me and hurts my brain so much every time the giant squid fight the giant squid fight is kind of cool like in the picture because this is an illustrated version of the book the picture is really cool because they have like these axes and whatnot and they're going at it 
uh, one guy gets got. There's a nice kind of mystery that doesn't fully get answered in this book. It's cool. It's fun. It's interesting. It's annoying that it doesn't get answered in this book. And that is, who's Captain Nemo? Where does he come from? And where does his companions come from? And you get small answers here and there. You technically, in this book, do get the answer that he is from India. Because during the shark attack, they're do they're fighting the shark to save a pearl diver. And he saves the pearl diver and gives him a bag of pearls. When asked why he did this, he responds that a part of his heart is still with that country and the people. And that country they were off the coast of was India. So, small answer there. Though no one reacts to it at all. The only thing that really gets a reaction is an idea of where one of his compatriots comes from and where he gets his money. So he gets his money from a sunken ship in uh, around the coast of Spain. And like that's kind of cool and interesting. Like, cool. So that's where he gets his money. Mystery solved. The movie just kind of glossed, bats that away. And then where one of the compatriots comes from, when the squid attacks, it grabs a man and rips him through the door of the Nautilus, like the hatch of the Nautilus, and he's you know screaming for help in French. It's one of the first times that you kind of learn where one of the people is from, <laughs> besides you know the subtle hint from Nemo uh, where he's from. And yeah, that, that's that's all you really get of that mystery. Near near the end of the book, while I was reading it, I started just skipping over the fish descriptions because even in the like interesting parts, like even when they're he's decided that he wants to get off the ship, he wants to you know leave. Like Professor Aranax decides that he he's ready to make an escape attempt. He still stops and lists fish from out the window. It makes me so annoyed every time. But it it it, it is least within his character, I guess. He he does it, it's annoying, but then the book kind of ends. You do see the deterioration or deterioration, one of those, of Captain Nemo's mental state. Because when the Nautilus gets pinned in the polar under the polar cap he is losing grip of the situation. Because early on in the book, when they get stuck on the coral reef, he is asked if there was an accident. And he replies, no, just an incident. Meaning that it wasn't of anyone else's fault. It's just, the you know, they've ended up on a coral reef. In When they are in the polar cap, uh, Professor Aranax poses the question again, but flipping it, was there an incident? And Captain Nemo says, no, there was an accident. Just kind of showing that he's he, he doesn't know what to do. Because with the Coral Reef incident, he was calm, collected. He knew what was happening. He knew what what to do, which was just wait. And then he, you know, they, they float off and they're fine. At the Polar Cap, he doesn't know what to do. The best idea that they have is to just dig their way out. But they're running out of air. So it's a race against, you know, time to, you know, try to survive and what they do is they dig most of the way and just as they're running out of air they're able to burst through the bottom and get out as fast as possible break through the ice and get air so they're able to you know solve that bit of an issue but they he starts slipping here and they start just kind of speeding through their journey then Ned Land forces Professor Aranax to push the question because even though they were told when they were first brought on the Nautilus, you're stuck here forever, Ned Land wants him to, you know, reapply the question to see if he has budged any. And the answer is still no, and he gets kind of irate about it. So they decide our only choice is escape. And it is when they are, they go through a, a maelstrom, not a maelstrom, a, a hurricane, uh, and Captain Nemo just gets more and more distant from his uh, companions after a squid attack and the death of one of his companions that isn't able to go to the coral graveyard, he gets very distant, dark, and pretty much, I believe, is implied. He 
either accidentally or purposefully drives the Nautilus into a maelstrom, which is a cyclone uh, whirlpool, if you will. And, you know, they get ejected and the book ends in the most cop-outy way. Everything was fine. <laughs> it, the last chapter is two pages. The previous chapter ends with the dinghy holding Consul, Ned Land, and Professor Aranax being ejected off of the Nautilus because the the bolts holding it to the Nautilus uh, break uh, and them going with it. Professor Aranax, who's our point of view character, is knocked out. And that that's that's it. He wakes up uh, in Norway and is fine. And that's where he's been recounting his like rewriting down his uh, accounts of what had happened that is one of the most cop-outy endings i i it really really sucks but you know i i was just happy to be done with the book to be honest and it is a it's an experience do i recommend reading the book this is where my opinion has changed originally i would say no don't just for the love of god stay away uh, because it it is a slog most people would probably just give up before reaching part two where most people would just give up after re before reaching part two where things actually start getting interesting and i wouldn't blame them there were so many times so many times i just wanted to say i got the pictures i need i got the i got the scans i can stop but then i remembered oh yeah i planned on doing an episode on it so i if i if i plan on actually doing that episode i need to finish it and i since i plan on doing an episode on daughter of the deep I need to finish the book. So I finished it. It's done. It's it's done. <laughs> and I decided to pair it with the movie, like I said, because it goes well with Daughter of the Deep's um, reasoning. Uh, again, sorry. need to pause and recoup. Okay. Like I said, I changed my opinion on whether or not you should read it to no, fr sorry, from no to yes, but find a different way don't read the physical version of the book for the love of god do not if you can find a comic book adaptation of it read the comic book if you can find an abridged version of the physical book read that fucking an audiobook version re listen to it it's so much it would be so much better than sitting there reading that or if you have to read the complete unabridged version of it Read it in the release order. Because the book originally came out as a serial. Or serialized. Which means that you would get one chapter, I think, every two weeks. And it would be perfectly fine. <laughs> you either got, it was serialized throughout a, the course of about a year. And... So I, I definitely think that it being released bi-weekly, um, you probably only got one, if not two, maybe, chapters a week. So, sorry, every two weeks. So read it like that. Read it how it was serialized, because that's the only way you might be able to mind-wipe the fact that just about every chapter there's a list of fish or a description of some really boring scientific tests where they're checking out the water density. No. It's so boring at times. So boring. Anyhow. On to the better version, but only in some ways, of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the film. Because... I, I literally rewatched the film today for this episode, and it's fine. It changes a lot of things, and I mean a lot of things, but it does keep at least a small handful of things. Uh, for example, it keeps the um, long hunt uh, for the Nautilus when they think it's a monster. Uh, they keep the under underwater funeral, although they change when it happens. Uh, they keep the Island of Crespo Hunt, 
though they also change it uh, to basically they merge the Crespo Hunt and Atlantis together, uh, and it's just set in an offline offhand line where when they arrive at the island of Crespo, they go and he describes it as an island that you know once flourished and whatnot, but then was sunk beneath the waves. And that that was it. <laughs> then the rest was you know him talking about the hunting grounds, which they don't do any hunting on in the film. <laughs> they just they just walk about it, but they changed it to where they also use it as like a farm, which is kind of interesting. Uh, then they kept the ship with no flag being sunk. They once again shifted where it happens and why it happens. Um, but they did keep it. Uh, they kept running aground, accident versus incident. Again, it's an offhand line. Uh, this time, console asks the captain, was there an accident? The captain says, no, merely an incident. We'll be floating again by night. And then they kept a squid attack. Other than that, it's a very fast-forwarded version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It wouldn't be bad as, like, a miniseries, maybe? Because as a film, they they aren't able to touch on anything. Like, at all. <laughs> they... By the time I think they go to the island of Crespo... I think it might be a little bit after the island of Crespo. Um, they'd already sailed 10,000 leagues... And that's the only min mention of their distance in the entire film. Throughout the book, at the very least, he is kind of giving you a bit of a progress update. Oh, we've sailed X amount of leagues from the time we left. You know, that, that's kind of interesting. They also show a map that kind of tracks where they are in the ocean and, like, how close they are to the, their base. Uh which they call Volcania in the in the film. It doesn't have a name in the book, and then in Mysterious Island, it's called Lincoln Island. So, yeah, so... And that map only shows the Pacific Ocean, which tells me that, I'm guessing, the entire movie, they sail their supposed complete 20,000 leagues in just one of the oceans. The whole point of the book is that Captain Nemo wants to show Professor Aranex the wonders of the world. He wants to take him on a tour of the world. And he, you know, wants to show him everything. In the movie, he he has this motivation, but it's more he wants to show him everything he's done. He wants to show him all of the discoveries and scientific advancements he's made on his own at his private island. <laughs> But, before they can get there, Ned Land had sent out the coordinates of that base, and it gets surrounded. So Nemo says, fuck it, gotta destroy it, and hits the destroy all of my cool shit button, <laughs> and the island explodes. Um, the, speaking of, there are a lot of personality changes in the film as well that makes it a bit more of an enjoyable experience. For example... Well, uh, kind of in some ways. <laughs> so, for example, um, Consul, he, instead of being Professor Aranax's servant, is now his apprentice, and thus has been given a bit of a personality change from, you know, completely loyal servant to willing to poke back and question um, the Professor. Ned has become a an increased presence in the film, but he's also a massive womanizer and super greedy. In the book, he's a little bit greedy, but more when it comes to what food he eats. He he keeps fighting. He he wants to hunt. He wants to you know kill stuff, and the captain keeps coming back to him saying, "Sure, for some things, and no to others." Because the captain is against just wanton killing for the sake of killing. So, he has to, you know, deal with not being able to kill 
a bunch of whales that are just minding their business and whatnot. It it's yeah. It throughout most of the book he is in the background doing nothing really. He mostly just starts getting sadder and sadder through, as the book goes on to where he's at a bit of a boiling point and then they're take they they're able to escape and everything's fine. Uh and then Captain Nemo he has a lot more of a willingness to murder um, Professor Aranax and his companions, kind of. So, he states that, you know, Professor Aranax can stay. You know, he, ha he has a use for Professor Aranax, but the other two, they, they can fuck off. I.e., they can drown in the ocean. And this, according to Captain Nemo, is a test of his loyalty to his companions. Uh, and it, it works out fine. <laughs> you know, they, they almost, they, they get a good scare and then he brings them back in. Then at the dinner table, he lets them know that that is what he does to prisoners. He'll just set them afloat to, you know, eventually drown. And in the book, he doesn't, he lets them on, he keeps them prisoner in a cell and they almost asphyxiate once. But during that time, he's deciding whether or not to, you know, keep, let them out, and he decides why not. He lets them out and lets them pal about the ship. Uh, the movie has no secret language, and that actually, it annoyed me more than I thought. Because a big part of the book is that it's a multicultural crew that uses a secret common language on the boat although captain nemo himself can speak all languages because he's very well learned um oh uh, captain nemo has a pet seal it's adorable uh, in in the film it's not in the book but it's very adorable in the film it doesn't add much <laughs> except for being cute uh oh yeah like i said they combined crespo and atlantis they changed the ship's power source in in the film. In the movie, it's explicitly stated that what he does is he pulls water in, uses the salt content, and converts it into energy. Somehow. And so he has an infinite source of power because he can just keep pulling in ocean water and using the salt from it to power his ship. And, you know, it's one of the more interesting things because it, you know, is an electric ship, which is not at all very common at that time. Like, light bulbs weren't very well, like, much spread around at this time. It came around later. You know, became a lot more widespread later. But in the film, it's kind of implied that what he has is the equivalent of a nuclear reactor in in the ship. <laughs> because, like, um, Professor Aranax, to look into it, has to put on in front of his face, at the very least, this, like, massive, like, lead shield that has to be lowered onto him so that he can look into it. And it, uh... It's implied that it's nuclear, it, although it's not expressly stated that it's nuclear. He just says that he, he's harvested the power of the universe. <laughs> and, and it's left at that. Uh, some motivations and beliefs have been shifted around in this book. Sorry, in, in the film. In the book, the reason that Professor Aranax agrees to join the expedition to hunt down the monster is because he has a theory as to what the monster is and he wants to prove it. His theory is that it's just a giant narwhal. Like, a really, really big one. <laughs> so he, he joins the expedition to do that. In the film, the potential of it being a narwhal is mentioned in passing by a reporter just asking how big can a narwhal get? And that that's it. They in the movie 
do get him to kind of say that he thinks it might be a, a monster or something that he can't, you know, fully confirm nor deny, but they twist his words and whatnot. And in the book, he actually submitted his theory to a paper, his theory being that it's just a, a giant narwhal. But he joins the expedition in the movie because uh, the government just offers him a lift to Saigon. He, he just needed a lift, and if he's on the boat, it gives the their expedition a little bit more credibility. Uh, something that is the same, actually, I forgot to note down, but with the long hunt that gets called, it gets called for a different reason. Um, the, the hunt for the Nautilus gets called in the book because it's just going on for too long and he fears that his crew is going to mutiny. Most everyone kind of agrees that it's probably a giant narwhal and, but they can't find it. So they're getting tired and there's a decent chance of mutiny. So he gives them the, I think it's called like the Christopher Columbus ultimatum or whatever. To where it's like, oh, just give me like three more days. And so the crew gives the captain three more days. And on the third day, as they're getting ready to turn around and head home, the Nautilus shows up. In the film, uh... The captain doesn't believe that it's a monster, and he just gives up. Uh, and as he's calling it, they come across the Nautilus mid-attack, attacking a ship that blows up. And then the Nautilus attacks them, as they also try to attack the Nautilus. And another thing that was very surprising... So, the things that were surprising that were actually the same from the book is that the ship that they're on, that the Nautilus attacks, survives and limps away. The, uh, words. <laughs> oh, when Professor Aranax is knocked overboard during the Nautilus's hit, um, Consul just jumps in after him. Because Consul stays on the boat, he doesn't get knocked over, but after, in the book, his his master, and in the uh, movie, his friend slash mentor uh, gets knocked over. He joins him. But yeah, so those were like small details that I actually appreciated. We're there. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the biggest issue with the film is that it's two hours and eight minutes, and again, not a lot happens. You get a bit more of a look into Nemo's background. In the movie, it is implied that he was enslaved. Uh, and him and his companions all, like, escaped, found an island, built a research base, built the Nautilus, and then have been touring the seas. And blowing up these ships that have been putting on the, um, how, what, what's the term? Basically the, the weapons of war, you know, gunpowder and the like highly explosive things to, you know, instigate and fuel wars. And he's very much against that. And that's why he's sinking the ship. These ships. Um, they had also like. Killed his family. He kind of mentions offhandedly. And. It's similar to. In the in the book. In the book you do get. After he sinks the ship. And the. Uh, Professor Aranax and companions. Are able to actually witness this. Um, event. You were told nothing about the ship as to why they attacked it. Except for that they are the ones, supposedly, that had something to do with uh, Captain Nemo's family's demise. And you only get that through like a kind of bit where after the attack, Captain Nemo goes to his room and cries over a picture of his uh, wife and family. And... That, that's pretty much all you get. Uh, 
then with that the ship that attacks them in the book is a big warship no flag they don't know where it's from and captain nemo when he learns that they don't know where it's from is like ah oh, good you don't need to know about that and <laughs> just like we're going to attack it but yeah i think overall the film's not bad there are two more film adaptations and they do what I consider to be the worst thing you could do to an adaptation, and that is add unnecessary characters. In this case, it adds a character that kind of just spits in the face of the book. Uh, and this isn't the movie I, I've been talking about this entire time. That movie, again, spot on with at least certain characterizations. But the 1916 and the 1997 films decided to add the 1916 and 1997 films decided to add a daughter for Professor Aranax. And for the most part, I wouldn't mind if you couldn't immediately tell why. But in this case, you can. You can very obviously tell why they added these, this character. She's a love interest for Ned Land. And that's it. It's very annoying. But each time you can very obviously tell that she's just a love interest for Ned Land. And that's the depth her character gets. That's it. It's terrible when that happens. Especially since, in the book, it is explicitly stated that Consul... Professor Aranax and Ned Land are both unmarried, have no families, like, or parents. They're single men just palling about together. And that's where the subtext comes in. I am pretty convinced, especially from the 2017 translation, that there's some subtext going on. It is very obvious that I'm pretty sure Captain Nemo has some form of crush on Professor Aranax, and it is pretty much reciprocated by Professor Aranax. And there's also something going on between Ned and Consul. But of course, you know, they don't have much screen time or book time uh, happening. But in the book, they are like fast friends that, you know, hang out together all the time. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of extra that you could read into it. It's not something that could have, at the time, been just text. Because, you know, especially in the 1800s, no. Like, if I remember correctly, like, Oscar Wilde got in a whole lot of trouble... Because he tried to make subtext the text. And they were like, no, no, you don't get to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of, like, a lot of fun gay stuff going on in the subtext. And that actually made the book more interesting, to be honest. I would love to see, like, a modern retelling where they try to take the subtext and just make it text. But the only issue with that is that it becomes a bit of a, you know, romantic tragedy at that point. Though at the end of the book, it is kind of left up in the air whether or not Captain Nemo survived. Um, later confirmed in Mysterious Island that yes, he did. Uh, it would kind of put a bit of a not great edge, if you will to a potential homosexual uh, love story. But again, I would, I would like to see it, because it would probably be really interesting to see. Uh, but with that, I think we are just about done. I've covered just about everything I wanted to um, hit on in the uh, movie and the book. And hopefully this kind of helps 
create the decent foundations for next week's episode on Daughter of the Deep. I do need to, between this episode and that episode, read a different book, do an episode on it. But then I'll get to Daughter of the Deep, in which I will be rereading Daughter of the Deep uh, for for the review. Because after reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I have decided to give Daughter of the Deep a second chance. I When I first read it, I was a little bit lukewarm to it. And I'll probably share my opinions why I was a bit lukewarm to it uh, next time. But... I think I might have a bit more of a warmer reception to it after the absolute mind-numbing dullness that is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the book. The movies, again, better. So, my recommendations are find an alternative way of reading the book. Be that, again, audiobook, comic book, abridged or just skip all of the lists of fish he conveniently keeps each list to a to like within that paragraph but scan the next paragraph to see if he starts mentioning more fish and then skip that one too because if he starts a list of fish the rest of that paragraph is a list of fish so just skip it it adds nothing to the story literally like his not vast knowledge of fish does not come in to, you know, help ever. And then the film, it's on Disney Plus, so give it a whirl. It's it's pretty good. I mean, the only issue is, but it kind of works for this version, is that they kind of ignore the fact that Captain Nemo's Indian. It's not mentioned, like it, even in the extremely subtle way that it is in the book. And it's not really explicitly shown in his character design, which is, again, not bad. Because if you look at the 1916 version of 20,000 Leagues on the Sea, a yikes. Like, he is full-on, stereotypical, black-faced Indian. It's not good. It's it's very bad. The only other issue is that the two adaptations after that chose white guys to, at least, at the very least, they didn't put them in blackface, but still, it's an Indian character, so he should at least look vaguely Indian. Anywho. With that, next week is Daughter of the Deep, and then after that will be Terminal Man, and I will be pairing Terminal Man the book with Terminal Man the movie, because from what I've come to understand, they're pretty much identical, and we're going to be double-checking that. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I will talk to you guys later. Goodbye.